0: Normal is a very rel- relative term and healing is absolutely not linear. <laughs> healing goes in yeah. many different circles. So it's always, yeah, something for your soul. Just being around people that that understand that that have the same part of the same struggles.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. My name is Walt Drennan, and you're listening to Ask Me About My Type 1, the Q&A podcast all about type 1 diabetes. Today is a very special episode on asking me about my type 1. I'm switching things up a little bit. I started noticing a trend across the last few episodes. I've been talking to a lot of people that have been fairly open about their type 1 for almost as long as they've had it. I would then describe how I wasn't, but I never really went into detail about how or even why I chose to keep my type 1 to myself for so long. So... In an effort to tell all kinds of stories, I decided to call in a friend to help me tell mine. My guest this time is Bethany. Bethany and I actually used to be co-workers. She also happens to be very familiar with chronic illness because she has a few of her own. Bethany refers to herself as a spoonie. The term comes from Christine Miss Randino and her spoon theory, which she developed in order to help explain to her friends and family what it's like living with lupus and uses a handful of spoons to demonstrate. I highly suggest you check Christine and spoon theory out. I found her experiences with chronic illness to be shockingly similar to mine, despite lupus and type 1 being completely different. On today's very special episode, Bethany and I talk about our experiences with chronic illness, and the questions that come up really highlight that connection, I think. Also, just as a heads up, we were having some bad weather on the day that we recorded this episode, so I ended up using a new recording software on my phone that I don't think get agreed with. So if things sound a little off, that's why. Hope you all enjoy this one.
0: Really bad at this kind of thing. I apologize. My name is Bethany, living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, doing the typical <laughs> nine to five. Been dealing with a lot of chronic illness, you know, over the past few years, a bunch of rare, hard to be diagnosed stuff. Just here to talk about health <laughs> and how it affects people in their everyday life, I guess. Yeah.
1: So Bethany, what, so what is yours officially called, I guess?
0: <laughs> Which one? Um, the main one <laughs> that caused me the biggest amount of trouble, it's called MALS or Median Arcuate Ligament Compression Syndrome. Um, super rare, very hard to diagnose. It's not fully understood still. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's been an interesting journey. But it's completely incapacitating. The only thing that the leading physician in the world for this condition can compare it to is end stage pancreatic cancer. That's what it feels like. But you know, you're not dying, and everybody tells you that you're fine. <laughs> so it's been it's been a journey.
1: What was the the journey to get there to that final like diagnosis?
0: the The journey was years of um, years of going in circles. Um, had you know, CT scans, MRIs, had multiple surgeries, maybe thinking that maybe it's your gallbladder, maybe it's your appendix, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. After a year and a half of just no answers as to why I was experiencing what I was experiencing, it went to, well, obviously it's just a psychological disorder. (laughs) You just need to speak with a psychiatrist. Um, You're choosing to be anorexic. It's your fault that So I dealt with that probably for a solid year or year and a half from physicians. I had a really good primary care physician that um, said, just leave Pittsburgh, go to Cleveland, please, I'm begging you. Cleveland did one test. They found it. (laughs) You need this really high-risk surgery. There's a 1 in 10 chance it's going to become emergent. But, you know, when you have no quality of life, you go for stuff like that. Some people. I did. <laughs> I needed that chance. But yeah, it's, it was a very long, arduous journey. But here I am <laughs> on the other side. Um, just other chronic illnesses have seemed to come into play as a result of what that had done to my body.
1: From what I've learned, having type 1, I don't have any other autoimmune uh, disorders. <laughs> the type 1 community has heard a lot. If you have one autoimmune disorder, the likelihood of having a second or a third is very, very high.
0: Yeah, and one of the ones that I have is called gastroparesis that all the time I'm told that they're surprised I don't have diabetes if I have (laughs) gastroparesis. Yeah, so unfortunately, uh, they can go with each other. (laughs) But, you know, do what you can.
1: Uh, So why don't – do you have any questions about type 1 or anything that you've thought about in the last Uh –
0: so there, there are a couple other people at work that I that I work with with type 1. I, I think there, there are a lot of people that don't necessarily understand the difference, I guess, in presentation and severity between type 1 and type 2. I kind of understand that. But, again, that's not something that you casually ask a coworker <laughs> in the middle of the day. Like, oh, by the way, how does this work? Because um, so it's really personal.
1: Yeah, it definitely can be. Um, mm-hmm. I kept it to myself for a very long time. I think while we... Worked at the same place it was towards the end that I kind of got a little bit more open about it, but still was very, very much something I kept to myself. So, what's something that you've wondered about but were kind of unsure of being able to ask?
0: So, why weren't you as open about it for a while? Was it just something that you were tired of talking about? Because I mean, I know that I definitely struggle with that occasionally. Um, when people ask you every day, Hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm still feeling terrible. I'm still dealing with this. Was it something like that more circumstantial or? I think
1: so. My, so I, I don't think I ever got really tired of talking about it because I never did, but I think my whole hangup about talking about it in general was just that, I think at least with diabetes, that's kind of like the umbrella term for type one and type two. There's a lot of misconception about it. Just kind of people have an idea of it, even though it's not necessarily based in like actual fact. So wanting or feeling like I had to explain that and then having to go through all the, I guess, the effort of having to represent type one, I think, was my like big hang up. I felt like the explaining of it was probably the most stressful thing about it and mm-hmm. not having to explain it was a lot easier than explaining it. Yeah. And then I think on top of that, I kind of grew up. My life story, I think, is a little bit more long-winded, I guess, is the word. I moved around a lot growing up. And so I I, I feel like having to add that to the big story just makes it even harder to explain myself to people. Okay. Limiting that, I think, is probably the biggest reason why i just never mm-hmm. really talked about it and then i just kind of got in the habit of it like it was just not something i talked about it wasn't really even the first thing that i thought of when people would when i would meet people okay. i don't
0: mm-hmm.
1: ever really defined myself by it's just something that i kind of deal with
0: yeah that's should the way you should do it for sure
1: yeah i don't know i think there are a lot of there's a lot of ways to approach it Being a little bit more open about it and willing to talk about it, I think is helpful in the long run, But and I'm kind of just getting into that now, but that's just kind of how I did it for a very long time, and I don't know if it worked or not, but it got me here.
0: If it worked for you, I mean, that's kind of what's most important, right? I mean, I can totally relate to that, just how exhausting it is to have to re-explain the same thing over and over and over and over, and I can't even imagine... In so many new social situations, (laughs) (laughs) having to have that uncomfortable conversation again and again, so it's it's justifiable. Just trying to, I think that's something that people who don't deal with any sort of illness, I don't want to say that you don't you don't understand it unless you actually deal with it or know or close to someone. But there is an amount of disconnect with people that aren't familiar frustrating exhausting kind of line that you have to walk and trying to explain and be open but also not overwhelm anyone
1: yeah that's kind of something that I always thought would I was afraid of doing so overwhelming people with my you know huge story or at least what I thought was a huge story or a big complex complicated story and then just having them be disinterested or getting bored too quickly and just kind of scaring them off and then I think particularly for people like we're around the same age, young people or and people, other people without chronic illness just don't understand what it's like to live with something, a lifelong condition that you right. can't really do anything about. You just have to kind of go with it as it comes. Mm-hmm. And it's something difficult for people in our kind of age range to kind of wrap their heads around.
0: But that's that's definitely something there's – there's this really kind of unhealthy mentality that I think goes along with being younger where, you know, if you just try hard enough to not be sick or you take the right concoction or you go to this right holistic person or, you know, yeah, that's, that's an issue that people just don't understand that some things are lifelong. I don't think they also understand what that projects or how that makes them the person feel that they're telling that to, <laughs> because obviously, if we could not have to deal with this, if we could take the right mixture, like you know, we already would have done that. <laughs> it's, an, it's, again, it's always a fine line, and everybody, everybody's on their own different journey and their different level of understanding. So again, you can't blame them, but sometimes, some days, it can be exhausting. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, I think in our Google age, where there's almost an, an answer for everything it's hard for people to uh, understand that sometimes there just aren't any quick fixes Mm -hmm. and um, you just kind of have to go with what you got in terms of our chronic illnesses. It's, that's just, we live with them because we have to not because we choose to or want to, Mm -hmm. we're not denying ourselves the, the cure, just because we want to go through it. It's, you know, it's there because it's, you know, we have to live with it. Right. At least for the foreseeable future and uh, it can be hard for people to understand that and i think you kind of sometimes at least type ones uh get into the conversations of uh, those kind of there's a lot of books out there like cure your diabetes or uh, stuff like that <laughs> there's <do>. a of right. <laughs> midwife and old, old wives tale kind of cures um that are never really for type one it's just for diabetes in general and uh Someone always has like an aunt or an uncle or a cat that has t- uh, diabetes, uh, not necessarily type one, and they may not really understand that person's t- uh, diabetes, but it's it's a way for them, I think, kind of the easiest way for them to relate. and uh, sometimes it doesn't always have the intended effect of getting getting like or letting someone know that you're on their side.
2: Mm-hmm. And it can
1: kind of frustrate the situation. but yeah, it's definitely difficult relating to people that just don't have to deal with uh chronic illness the way some some of us do
0: yeah and and kind of going off of what we were talking about earlier where you're 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 either you're either worried that you're going to be a burden or it's going to be too overwhelming but also sometimes it turns into feeling like you're For me personally, maybe it's because I have a rare and weird condition that you're almost like a sideshow. Like, tell me more about this. This is interesting. I want to know. I'm like, I don't care. I'm just curious. (laughs) That's also a weird, I guess, duality between the two extremes.
1: Yeah, wanting people to know about it, but not having to be the person to explain it, I guess.
0: Maybe that's more me being a slight freak of nature (laughs) and what I have.
1: I get the, I think type ones understand the the burden aspect of it. Cause I guess any chronic illness can be seen as a, as a burden, especially by the people that have it. And then kind of inflicting that on other people is something that you just try to avoid at all costs. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you know what it's like to live with it. And you can't imagine somebody else like wanting to deal with it, I think, which is more on us as opposed to them. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, can, I definitely relate to the the burden idea of it.
0: What's one thing that you wish was like easier explained to people or easier to understand? I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> say exactly.
1: Yeah, I guess the the fact, I guess the idea that diabetes is more than just Wolf or Brimley talking about it on TV or like those, those bad diabetes jokes you hear on SNL or something like that. But basically, that it's an autoimmune condition that people who have it don't necessarily or never necessarily did anything to get it. Uh, Doctors still don't really know what causes it or why people get it when they do. They can identify it and treat it, but that's pretty much all. There's no cure. There are definitely there's definitely a lot of technology, especially that's coming out in the last few years, that's made it a lot easier to to manage. But again, it's just management. It's not a cure, and it's something that. People like me deal with twenty four seven. It's something that's kind of always in the back of our minds, and I think also that even though we look relatively, we look like anybody else, we're all we're all still sick, and it's it's hard. You may not see it, but it's always there. I think that's kind of what I wish people just kind of knew.
0: Because people are very judgmental. Because that's another condition that I deal with: pots post orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Some days I get really dizzy. I can't walk. Um, at work, I can't go up a flight of steps, so I'll take the elevator up one flight of steps so I don't feel like I'm going to pass out. And how many times I've heard behind me, why couldn't she just walk up the steps? Like, grow up. Don't be so lazy. Um, you know, just hearing those, those comments in passing are very frustrating. <laughs> um, but you you learn to deal with them, but it's frustrating that you even have to. There are a lot of people that do try to subtly shame you with diabetes or, like, pass it aggressively
1: um again not or aggressively obviously.
0: okay <laughs> yeah
1: aggressive aggressively yeah um, <laughs> there has again there there haven't been too many because again i i always kept it kind of kept it pretty close um to myself but in the there was i did a uh kind of a big uh bike ride charity bike ride event and there was one person that kept on calling it uh, a heroin habit because of the fact that I use syringes to, and it wasn't even anything. So at that point I was using syringes just to fill up my pump, which is a way to get insulin into your body. And I wasn't even sticking the in- syringes into myself. It was literally into a machine that I then stuck onto me. So I wasn't doing anything with needles per se, like to myself and kind of just getting that and wasn't so much that the fact that they brought it up, but it was just the constant bringing it up. That was really annoying i guess is probably the biggest one that i can think of and then there's been a couple times i guess like the they bring up the whole wolfer brimley diabetes as opposed to diabetes which is Mm. something that i extremely dislike because it's it's not what it's called it's it's a speech impediment the guy the guy guy doesn't do it on purpose i don't think it's just what he says or how he says it specifically but a lot of people call it that and Mm. for some reason find it funny yeah very, very fast. But yeah, I think those were the only kind of ones that stick out. I think the whole diabetes one it I squashed it by not really acknowledging it and kind of shutting it down pretty quickly. But the other one it went on for a very long time. And uh yeah. I never laughed. I never kinda of, I ignored it as best as I could. But yeah, some I, you know, and it's just some people just don't get it or refuse to understand it, I think. And that's kind of The one thing, I guess, another thing that I wish people would take at least specifically diabetes more, a little bit more seriously because it, it is deadly. Like I've had a few close calls back in college. um, And it's, it's kind of one of those, it's one of the, I think one of the few diseases that actually people feel like they can poke fun at, um, like you don't make fun of cancer patients or people that have, uh, gotten. Uh, or in remission for cancer like why do you think you Mm. can make fun of people with type one and i think that's obviously it's not type one specifically but just diabetes in general and i think it's because people just don't understand like the gravity of it Mm. and how much goes into kind of living with it
0: that's one thing that i've personally thought about again just watching my coworkers. so the things that i've dealt with i've had a lot of food issues because i couldn't eat uh food was excruciating for me, just knowing how kind of all-consuming and constant that you have to always be aware. Do you? Again, I don't know a lot. (laughs) Um, Does it depend on the day? So you have constant monitoring?
1: Uh, So I guess constant monitoring is a way to describe it, but I think the longer you have it, the easier it kind of gets. You just kind of become second nature. But Basically, we just have to monitor. We have to kind of be aware. Not even monitor it. We don't have to write anything down or keep track of anything. A lot of people do just because it makes things easier for them. I think. Okay. Uh, but we just have to be aware of what we're eating because we have to account for it by taking insulin. Um, so your body does that naturally. Like your your pain or insulin producing cells uh, kind of start sh- or start working uh, before you start eating, and then that kind of helps regulate your blood sugar. Um, but for us, we don't make those anymore. Like our body attacks those. And so we can't make insulin anymore. So we have to think about it actively, uh, so that we can avoid, uh, sugar, blood sugar spikes. So knowing what we're eating, knowing the carb count in it. So carbs are basically just, it's just a fancy way of saying sugar, um, what the body uses for energy. And so we have to be aware of how much we're eating so that we can take the correct amount of insulin to account for it. So that's so it I guess explaining it that way does make it seem like it's a very constant thing. But I think over the years, I've had my type one for almost 19 years now, and I can kind of look at a plate of food and kind of guesstimate what I think, what dosage I think I should take for it. And it's kind of become second nature after a while. But okay. I think that also kind of downplays the fact that food can be a very stressful thing for type ones, at least it has been for me, because. It's always a decision like, do you want to feel bad now or feel bad later? Or do you want to just avoid it all and have a salad kind of thing? So, And even even those times you can kind of uh, guess incorrectly or restaurants get your order wrong and they include something that you didn't account for and you kind of pay for it later. So it is something that is always there. Maybe not constant monitoring or writing things down, but it's definitely something that we always think about or at least I always think about.
0: Okay. I can understand those very much, but in, in a different <laughs> way, based upon, you know, again, allergies to gluten for me, again, issues with, with having eaten. Okay. Um, and you probably also just sometimes go based upon how you're feeling, too. I'm not feeling right. Let me check. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Do, mm-hmm?
1: yeah. So the way we check, we, can check our blood sugar, so we can get like an instant picture of where our sugar is now, and so we can account, and then we can eat something that can you know help keep that where it is, or we can, I guess, predict what it might be if we eat a certain thing, and then uh, dose our insulin accordingly to that. So it is something that yeah, again, it's just something that we have to think about when we eat. It's not just you know oh I want to have this. It's what is this going to do to me now? What is it going to do to me tomorrow? and so on. Yeah. So there's a bit of forethought that has to go with uh, anything, I think, doing with food, unless it's sugar-freer, free very low-carb.
0: Does Do people food shame you sometimes when you're eating to try to compensate for certain things, or not so much because the people that you're with are aware of it, or it just really depends on the situation?
1: I think I remember once in college, I there was a person that knew that I had type one and I was reaching for like, I think some sort of candy it was around like Halloween time and there was candy present. So I went and grabbed it. They, they gave me a weird a kind of like a dirty look. And it's like, should you be eating that those kinds of situations? Again, it's not something that I've It's always been something that I kept to myself. So it wasn't really something that people noticed or would have been able to kind of shame me for. But there is that kind of idea where I've definitely heard of type ones, like being at the office or at school where there's like, uh, you know, a surprise like donut party or like a cupcake or a birthday and there's, you know, cake or something there. And uh, someone will comment like, oh, sorry, you know, Karen, you can't have any, Um, (laughs) which is not entirely true. Like Karen may not want the cake because it'll make her feel terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, But she can definitely have it as long as she kind of doses for it and, you know, does it it thinks about it basically because you always have to think about what you're eating because it will definitely you'll definitely feel it sooner or later so it's definitely something that comes with the territory I think maybe not necessarily for me specifically but it it's something that people deal with like I've heard sort of children um uh, like at school especially when you're in like the younger years like elementary school
2: mm-hmm.
1: teachers know this because their parents want their teacher to know what their child is going through so they have to be aware of it and like you know those surprise like. Cupcake parties for kids that they have on their birthdays. Some teachers or some parents, like parents of other children in the class, might take it too far and say, "Like, oh, I'm sorry, you can't have one of these because you have type one or you have diabetes." um So they'll like intentionally exclude them for that reason, thinking that they're being helpful or being aware, but really it's just kind of making someone feel bad about something that they can't yes. really control.
2: Especially
0: and it's kid. something that,
1: right, exactly. Like I guess I, I imagine kids with gluten allergies would feel similarly.
0: And again, if I'm getting too personal with anything, please let me know. Um, yeah, that's what the show's about. Well, yeah. Like, still, there's still boundaries, even though this, this is the point. There's still boundaries. Um, for mm-hmm. me personally, I have developed some issues with eating just because of the bad, associating, bad associations with food. Do you deal with any of that sometimes with food because of diabetes? Because of, is there sometimes an unhealthy relationship or? Just depends.
1: I think I definitely get stress. food stresses me out. I've noticed, I don't know if it's always been a thing or if I'm just noticing it in the past few years, but going to the grocery store is really um stressful it's because of all the options, I think, and how certain options affect me and also coupled with the fact that I just want certain foods that may not be as good for me as um others would be. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of be it can be really stressful like that. There is a kind of a A condition that is being kind of discovered as of late is called diabulimia Mm. and it's uh as of now it's a lot of times in girls but basically it's where um a person will willfully not take their insulin because of a fear of gaining weight because insulin is a hormone that will that makes it easier for you to gain weight Mm. Uh, one of the side effects of it is and so but when you don't take your insulin no matter what you eat you don't gain weight and you actually in fact lose weight because your body can't absorb the carbohydrates as energy that it needs so it starts to reverting to using your fat as energy
2: okay so you end up
1: losing a lot of weight that's one of the the symptoms of uh type one at the very beginning is when you lose like excessive amounts of weight in a very short amount of time So I think, but then there's also just people, I think, that are afraid to eat or afraid to eat certain things. So they'll like restrict their diet almost um, uh, excessively, I think, or at least I would see it as excessive. And some people, it's just kind of nerve wracking because uh, I think it depends a lot on when you were diagnosed uh, older as opposed to younger. I was 12 when I was diagnosed and I think I've noticed the kind of the fear of eating carb heavy foods more so and people that are diagnosed later in life or kind of in their twenties or thirties because mm-hmm. i think it's just kind of maybe a failure at the kind of the medical side of it but explaining kind of the the way that you actually can eat pretty much anything that you want you just have to be kind of conscious of it and be aware of it there are definitely smarter choices that you can make obviously anybody any human should be eating healthy like you know mm-hmm lots of fruits and vegetables like small amounts of meat small amounts of fat and kind of just a full complete diet but it's just harder I think and kind of things like that like the added complications of type 1 with and related to food and how you kind of sustain yourself are very kind of there and they can be really stressful and kind kind of cause you to maybe go over the deep end and just not eat any carbs or try to do that which is very hard and I don't think I, I've no I know people that have tried to do that and like try to severely limit their carbon take and it's just kind of not a very fun lifestyle. It's just a lot of you know celery sticks and uh, carrots kind of thing. So it's kind of like you can definitely be healthy, kind of in quotes, mm-hmm. but be miserable at the same time. So it's a very fine line with type one, I think, specifically because it's a matter of living the life you want, but also taking care of yourself so that you can live as long as you possibly can um yeah food is at least for me it's a very big stressor and i think it has a lot to do with the type one aspect of it if i didn't have it i wouldn't have to think about what i eat as much so it's kind of a double-edged sword now that i think about it i'm probably a little healthier than i would be otherwise but it's still okay. difficult
0: it's active hard work right. <laughs> exactly think about it constantly okay the, the main reason you know because i specifically it was so excruciatingly painful when i had to eat for I just started having food aversions, that every time that I needed to eat or you know I just was so stressed that I couldn't get myself to do so because I knew of the consequences I knew what was going to happen I didn't think about that with a grocery store either uh for me everything's very clearly laid out it says gluten-free we're good get this do that it takes me 20 minutes I'm out of the grocery store I never thought about how stressful that and overwhelming that could be
1: I go to like a 24-hour grocery store like at odd hours. So I don't have to deal with mm-hmm. all the people there. Because seeing what seeing what's in their carts always kind of, also kind of stresses me out. And it's like the the option paralysis kind of thing. Like there's so many options. Like, and for me, there's a very real consequence for each of those. So it's I can I'll be like walk like strolling around the <laughs> around the place for a good 10, 15 minutes before I even pick anything out. So, and sometimes it's just, and then when I do get like overstressed at this, I end up oftentimes going for a, a very easy quick fix, like at a fast food place, which is probably even worse just because it's mm-hmm. not very good food for you. And it's very carb heavy and fat heavy, but at least at those places, there's only like there you, you have, you know, five choices as opposed to a hundred at a grocery store.
0: And is it always needing to read all of the... All of the ingredients do you have to go through the ingredients and the counts and all that fun so, stuff before you purchase anything? Or do you that... look
1: I'll keep an eye on the carbs. It's not so much I don't really take into account much else. Like fat isn't something I'm overly concerned about or calories. It's it's just something and I at this point now I kind of know what I like and what um what's out there. So it's a little bit easier. Like I'll just go for what I know um but sometimes there's new things that i like that look interesting or like i'd like to try out but it's just really and then there's stuff that i like that's just not good for me and make me feel terrible when i do eat them and i still will kind of like and i kind of tug a war kind of thing it's like oh it's gonna make you feel bad and not do good things for you but i like it and i want to enjoy you know <laughs> things and not have to hate eating all the time so it's just kind of and I think just choices for me like if there's too many choices for me, I, I kind of get stuck in like a loop trying to weigh the options. i I found ways of like dealing with it, but it's it's something that kind of comes up every now and again. and I probably yeah, some days to, are
2: harder. yeah mm-hmm.
1: exactly I, I probably go to I get fast food more often than I should. but yeah, and that's just kind of just not good for you wholesale. like even if you didn't have type one, getting fast food a lot is not good for you
0: that fine balance of you know trying to stay healthy eat reasonably but also wanting to live a little bit and wanting to feel normal sometimes right, exactly. I do slightly ridiculous things just so I can feel normal and feel like <laughs> you know like I'm not ill for just a day <laughs> yeah exactly sometimes you end up spending a weekend in bed because you over overdid it but <laughs> it's worth it occasionally I don't know again. This is this is something that personally infuriates me and I don't even have diabetes just the American health system does that cause a lot of stress for you or does it depend um, uh,
2: like healthcare you mean
0: healthcare unreasonable costs of supplies it shouldn't be
1: yeah that's that's another <laughs> source of stress um i think now in the news nowadays insulin particularly is very like is talked about a lot just because of how expensive it's gotten in the last decade i think for the most most part most of the jobs i've gotten are not because i've been terribly fond of the job itself but because i needed the insurance so that i could buy my medication insulin is the main thing that i need and it's really expensive if you don't have insurance and um it's expensive when you do have insurance. And it can be and it can be pretty expensive if you do have it. You're right. And I've and at least lately, or at least it's been kind of documented, a lot of people just will kind of hop the border to either Canada or Mexico and do that. Some people I heard a story from like a pharmacist in Mexico. She has gotten people from like Chicago fly in to Mexico to get their insulin and then fly back to Chicago. And apparently that's cheaper than getting it. Kind of through their insurance or without insurance mm-hmm. so i think i'm a little lucky in that i'm relatively close to canada i've never done that <laughs> <'cause>
2: my <laughs> insurance is. Good.
1: <laughs> i've never done it i've i know that you can like it's very easy to go over the border buy insulin they don't need prescriptions for it here you need a prescription to buy insulin and it's very easy and they just make it it's a lot less of a headache i think i know someone that from the u.s but she moved to canada because she got married to a canadian and um she was talking about how like just like the huge load off of her mind uh not having to worry she was like looking for a job and not having to worry about her medical insurance because she had type one and she didn't have to worry about getting all of her supplies at at a very affordable and reasonable rate because here like i've been in situations like between jobs where it got kind of scary and uh i was I never got to the point where I had to ration out my supplies, but it got like I was always constantly thinking about that and worrying about it and like maybe took a job that I probably wasn't as good for me in the long run. But because I needed the insurance, I took it anyways.
0: Right. People that do are people that don't have illnesses. I feel like this is something that they just don't even realize because I, I have had to be held back in my career because I needed that job with the medications to keep me alive. To keep me functioning, if I don't have that medical insurance, I'm not going to be able to work. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it could be life and death. And you do hear news stories of people who couldn't afford it, so they rash and, and, you know, heaven forbid. Um, That's that's a that's a massive stressor that I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily, that, that aren't ill or don't deal with any illnesses, don't realize. Um, especially as a millennial where benefits are so hard to get. Sometimes exactly um, you'll take anything to have those benefits and it's uh, dreams versus what you need to do to keep going. is
1: to stay alive, yeah.
0: Right. So it's it's exhausting another aspect.
1: (laughs) Another draining aspect of the whole story, yeah. Yeah. And then like contract work is getting more and more kind of common, um, Mm. which is like you know, three, four month stints without Mm. any benefits. And that's kind of how corporations are kind of getting around having to give benefits to people, um, but Mm -hmm. still getting work done. And that's, that was always really frustrating because I would, I would get those like alerts, like, Oh, there, there's someone hiring here, 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 and here and slowly for like, you know, six months. And that was always really frustrating because I needed, I could not take that job because it wasn't, it didn't have any benefits. And I was either, you know, on my way of running out of something or just in need Mm -hmm. of help with that. It can be demoralizing. And then that kind of adds to like the mental stressors of the condition that already have its own.
0: It's not punishment enough to have to deal with the everyday challenges of having this. But then you also get thrown into the financial issues that really aren't your fault.
1: <laughs> and then insulin was always one of the I remember in school, oh, I would took an Economic class, and it was uh, insulin was used as like a, an example of inelastic demand, where basically something they can basically make the the price of something whatever they want because people will always buy it. There's no way they cannot buy it because they need it to live, and that was kind of annoying to have that as an example of something that you can basically charge whatever you want because people will still buy it because they needed to live, and yeah, but- kind. Of, I think it was kind of before it became kind of very well known that. It seems or at least we're trying to. Like, as Congress is trying to figure out if the insulin companies are um, intentionally doing this. Kind of, they always they, the big three yeah. always seem to raise their prices almost at the same time.
0: Right. I like, um, it's, everybody knows it's intentional, but it's just finding the proof.
1: Right. And, and then,
0: you know, people paying other people off.
1: Yeah, and so and then here in the states, at least, people are like opening up GoFundMe pages to pay for their insulin. uh, one guy, a very famous kind of case was he was $50 short of his ultimate goal and he ended up dying. Like quite literally, he ended up dying. He was a cartoonist and he was taking care of his mom and he and uh, he just needed help. So he went on GoFundMe, was $50 short and he ended up dying. And like one of his best friends uh, was saying, he's like, wow, like I had no idea. Like he did not know.
0: The pride of it. And like, again, like you shouldn't have to deal with this. And you're... <laughs> Just having a rough month can destroy everything, which is insane.
1: It's something that the type one community is very, very aware of. And I think it's getting, finally getting the attention that I think it deserves. Uh, but again, people, I think, don't really understand. They know that people need insulin to live, but like maybe not associating it with type one diabetes specifically. So I right, think
0: how dire it is if you, if you don't have it, how
1: mm-hmm. the longer you have type one, the less time you can live without insulin specifically. And so. It is very scary.
0: And I have family friends who, because of the cost of their medications, because of everything else and living in an area that isn't the most affluent, <laughs> she just won't eat because she can't afford the food. She can afford her medications, but she can't afford the food to keep her sugar up, to keep this up. So again, like, Greg can afford your insulin, but you can't afford the food.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, kind of a, a, an irony of thing. catch-22. You need insulin to eat, okay. but you can't eat because of the insulin.
0: I can't even imagine how exhausting.
1: Big topic of discussion in our circle.
0: I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is demoralizing. It can, yeah.
1: Yeah, and like being next, to, like being so close to Canada and seeing how easy, I mean, I definitely probably there is a lot more to it than just kind of um, going to Canada but that's not a solution either. Like, you can definitely go there and right. help that, but it doesn't really fix anything on this side, I think.
0: Right. It's insane that you have to go to another country. Right. Exactly. Yeah. to get medication. Is the, the, that being seen as a reasonable step is. Yeah.
1: Possible. And not everybody in the country can do that. Like, people in Colorado, what are they supposed to do? And a lot of them do it anyways. Like, they'll make the drive or they'll make the flight. And because it, it is literally cheaper, and the alternative is not living anymore so
0: well even some people some people here when you are so close like some people still here can't do it because of not everybody can afford the weekend away right (laughs) You you know not everybody works nine to five and can take off the amount of days um passports are money take money so they take a while to get you know
1: there's definitely yeah a lot of barriers
0: the health system should be about removing barriers. Right. Well, it's not the health system so much as it is insurance, but they're definitely creating more and more and more barriers for people that are ill every single day. Right. Um, not right. just diabetes, but definitely is affecting that community. There's so many tests that I need to have done that my insurance considers experimental, but Medicare, Medicaid, everywhere else covers them. But my particular insurance. All right. yeah. And these are things that are like really great diagnostic tools. But because my insurance doesn't cover it, they can give me a discount of $2,000 if I want to pay it up front and just have the test done. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. I just, I just have that lying around yeah. to, <laughs> to give you that might say the test is inconclusive. It would help my quality of life significantly, yeah. but not really in that place to have that opportunity. It's an interesting time to be alive. Right. <laughs> Thank God for modern medicine. Again, that's another thing, like, thank God for modern medicine. But uh, <laughs> it should be more easily attainable.
1: And so do you find yourself running into a lot of those issues?
0: Mostly with testing, because my de- my particular condition, the main one that costs everything, isn't still fully understood. A lot of things aren't covered because of medical necessity, It's not shown as medically necessary to have this test done in relation to this condition because of whatever medical codes. (laughs) So I run into that a lot. Some doctors don't think it's a real thing. The cause of it's not, it's just, it's, it's, yes, I run into it a lot in a lot of different arenas, but I guess it's not as dire for me now. It's more just a quality of life thing than staying alive. (laughs) Uh, Still, it's a big deal, but I'm making it one day at a time when you have to, yeah, (laughs) you figure out a way. And that's another thing. Just, I don't know if it's the whole issue of being female with chronic illness, very easily and quickly being dismissed by multiple (laughs) doctors or, you know, it being more psychological than physical. That's that's that. I think that brings me to that causes the most issue with getting anywhere with my health is just, certain parts of it not being acknowledged. A lot of the neurological parts of um, being malnourished for so long or, uh, you know, I I deal with hypokalemia all the time and it gives me all kinds of cardiac symptoms. I'm dizzy. I can't breathe. Oh, it's just anxiety. This one doctor three years ago said that everything that you were dealing with was anxiety. So now I'm just going to say it's anxiety even though you are proven to have multiple conditions, (laughs) just go home and and sleep it off. Just have to be very aggressive with doctors sometimes. No, you need to check this, 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 and that. I won't take no for an answer. It's not anxiety. Doctors can be exhausting. I think that that's, especially in our area in Pittsburgh, doctors are only given a certain amount of time. Like you get 15 minutes. This is all we can do outside of that. You know, it's just the, the level of care isn't as great recently
1: and then you said that you you go to cleveland
0: i went to cleveland yeah so the difference between being treated in pittsburgh and being treated in cleveland is just light years again they have that 15 minute time limit they don't really care uh if it's not if you don't present really stereotypical symptoms for certain conditions obviously it's just in your head whatever um way that cleveland works i had a doctor sit with me for an hour and a half answering every single question that I could even think of just to make sure that I understood where I was at, what I need to do, what I need to worry X, Y, Z, making sure that I fully understood my condition, the resources that I needed, took the time with me <laughs> explained to me how real everything is just the, and again, not everybody has those privileges to be able to go and drive three hours away to a different state to see a different doctor or go to a different facility. So they don't see all those bogus records. but yeah, the quality of care is much different outside of <laughs> Pittsburgh.
1: Doctors, at least for type ones, I think the doctor or the experience with your endocrinologist, that's the doctor that we go to, the specialist. it can definitely shape your relationship with your type 1 and kind of the way you go about it. and they can be a big source of stress depending on how they treat you and their expe- the expectations that they set for you. The big number that we go by, and kind of dealing or giving doctors an idea of where our blood sugars are yeah. for a three month period. It's called the HbA1c or A1c for short. It's a number, so n- people without type one are around a 4.5 to 5.5. Type ones tend to hover around the six and seven, but they're kind of encouraged to get closer to like the 5.5 or at least nowadays they have been. So there's, and I've heard of stories, I've never experienced this myself. I've always had pretty good doctors. They kind of take what I have or what I have to say into account and kind of work with me as opposed to trying to make me fit to a box that they prefer me to be in. But I've definitely heard of stories where doctors will threaten to pull someone's license if they don't kind of um, get their act together, so to speak. And kind of doing that with that kind of over your head or being lorded over you is very stressful and very difficult. The day-to-day of type one just by itself is tough, but then having an authority figure in your doctor kind of threatening to do these things to you is tough and it can be, can make the whole experience a lot worse and kind of result in negative medical outcomes too, I think. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. So like what I say is like, if you don't like your endocrinologist just go to another one, but I happen to live in Pittsburgh that has, which has lots of doctors and lots of options to choose from. Even with my insurance, I have a lot of options in terms of endocrinologists that I can visit, but Mm -hmm. people don't like people in the middle of, you know, Nebraska or Iowa don't necessarily have those resources or they have resources that they have to drive two to three hours out of their way to visit. I know Mm -hmm. people- In Pennsylvania, that live out in like Lancaster, and they drive to Pittsburgh, like two or three hours away, just to see their their diabetes specialist. So it's not as easy as just kind of switching, but it can definitely have effects on your health. I think if your doctors are just not on your side,
0: right? And I mean, it's it encompasses all of your health, your physical and your mental. So it's it's important to find the right doctor and a good doctor. And and when when you do hit one of those exceptionally poor <laughs> doctors, it can be really, really emotionally discouraging. Sometimes you just have to pick up and keep going, but it, it can be very draining when the person that's supposed to help you is the one presenting more barriers.
1: And would you say that that was, that's like the hardest part of it was get just getting, finding a doctor that believed you, I guess?
0: So I experienced a very specific set of nightmares. So um, there is a gastroenterologist that was supposed to be the best of the best in Pittsburgh. They handles the hardest cases, the weirdo cases. He's really great at this. So I waited six months to speak with this doctor. I got there. The The person that comes in and asks you all the questions, she was very short and rude with me. Um, he came in. He told me that he, like, there's nothing wrong with me. I just need to talk to a psychiatrist. You know, I had lost 40 pounds at that point in time. I was struggling to do much of anything because I was so malnourished. I started crying and begging him for help. Didn't help with him having it in his head that it was a psychiatric (laughs) disorder. He told me that he likes to see patients cry, you know, wrote me a script to see a therapist and sent me home. I went to talk to a nutritionist. I found out later at another doctor's appointment that that specific doctor wrote on my chart not to treat me any further from my complaints. So that's why Pittsburgh became a nightmare for me. I, you know, put in an official complaint, nothing ever turned out of it, but just genuine abuse by doctors. I ended up going to a nutritionist begging her for help to try to figure out how to eat, how to stop losing so much weight. And she told me to my face that it was my fault that I chose to be anorexic. And if I couldn't figure out how to gain weight on my own, that they were going to forcibly admit me to a psych ward to help me with my eating disorder. (laughs) You know, so it was just, it was a very fast downward spiral for me after I saw that one terrible doctor. To this day, I struggle with getting adequate treatment because of what he placed on my chart, which is why I think I personally had to go to Cleveland. But yeah, you get, you get that one bag doctor and it could just destroy everything for you. Sometimes. (laughs) And again, yeah. having having yeah. a rare condition that isn't fully understood certainly was not in my favor. And like once you get in that loop, it's just impossible to get. <laughs> like once once someone thinks that and puts that in your chart, it's impossible to get out of. So countless emergency room visits just because I was in so much pain that it was unbearable. I didn't know how I wasn't dying. So I would go in and I would intentionally decline any and all pain medications because why why would I take them? It's going to make me feel better for three hours and I'm going to be back to the same situation. I'm just here to see if you can find anything. <laughs> but once you're branded a drug seeker, you're a drug seeker. It doesn't matter if you haven't, if you've declined pain medications for forever, you're still a drug seeker. Anyway, yeah, it's it's an interesting experience with chronic illness in the medical industry. People are very quick to assume that there's some sort of attention seeking behavior It's, it's weird. And you know, doctors are human and like, you can, especially when you're, you can only work with what you can work with if you have too many patients.
1: Yeah. I think there's definitely, I guess type one is a little bit easier in the sense where there is a diagnosis. People Mm -hmm. understand it to a degree and there's a very clear identifiable treatment for it. But again, it's something that you have to live with. And so people living with it Don't live in, you know, a type one box. They have other things going on, and all those things can affect it. So the treatment for each person is very different in terms of um, dosages and and their exercise habits and things like that. So it's very, so a doctor can understand type one, but treating, you know, ten different patients, patients with it shouldn't be kind of a cookie cutter kind of thing. So yeah, I couldn't imagine having to deal with something that people don't really understand or really, maybe even think exists.
0: So fortunately, again, had had an amazing, amazing doctor in Cleveland. Had surgery, doing much better, back to functioning. Um, it was just, it was an ordeal to get there. How long did it take for you to get diagnosed when you were younger? Did you deal with symptoms for a long time?
1: So yeah, I was twelve. Um, I was actually in Pittsburgh at the time. We were in the middle of moving from Texas to Mexico. My Dad is from here, so we have family here, and we were coming here to visit them before the big move. And I remember, so I remember maybe the symptoms, because usually people have symptoms for at least typically, like the typical story, people have symptoms for a few weeks or maybe even a month. I think mine lasted a week or two. I was with my grandma at the time, who happened to be a nurse, so she, I think she called, she actually called it like, oh, it it looks like diabetes, like I think it's diabetes. But I remember feeling very thirsty. That's one of the symptoms. Because when you are when you don't make insulin and uh, when you have type 1, you need it. And since I wasn't making any, I was eating all this food and not getting the energy I needed from it. So I was having all the sugar build up. And your body's way of getting rid of it is to pee it out, essentially. So I was yeah. really dehydrated. Even though I was drinking all these things, I would drink juice, which is terrible <laughs> when your blood sugar is high. Uh-huh. I would drink like soda all the time. Milk is another thing I would drink a lot, which apparently has a lot of carbs in it. And I just was not. And I also wasn't eating a whole lot because I was drinking so much. I was always full, even Mm -hmm. though I wasn't really getting any of the nutrients. I was losing weight really fast. I was losing like a couple pounds a day. By the end of it, I think I was 85 pounds when I was 12, which I think you should be closer to 100. So I think maybe it's like, I remember going to a doctor. He tested my urine. And then one day it was just, we went to the emergency room. And they, they gave the final stamp. But yeah, I don't think I, I honestly think it wasn't really that long. Probably maybe two, three weeks, which is I think lucky because some people can go months without realizing it, and that can be you can get really dangerous in that kind of frame. Um, but yeah, they called it. I was young. I was in that kind of type one window, so there wasn't really any question about it. They uh-huh. they gave me test and they figured it out. And yeah, I was in the hospital for four days. And then out, after that, I was let go and had to deal with, do the type one thing ever since.
0: How overwhelming was that at 12 years old?
1: I think for me, so at, the, at 12, the the doctors, I think, were more talking to my parents than they were to me specifically. Like I was definitely involved and they kept me in the loop, but I probably wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention. attention. And then I was also getting ready for this big move to a new school, to a new country. And I was kind of, I had other things on my mind. Harry Potter came out that year. (laughs) It was Harry Potter four. So I was really stoked about that.
0: You had nothing to keep Uh, you distracted, which is good.
1: Yeah. And uh, in the early phases, at least it's a little bit easier to manage, especially my parents, like they kind of kept me on a pretty tight regimen. So after kind of getting the medication I needed, it was felt pretty easy. But then yeah. So I think my story was like one of the more one of the more pleasant stories Good. that I've heard at least. But yeah. But I got they caught it within I think when I went to the emergency room my blood sugar was like five hundred and fifty six, which like the regular range is between seventy and one twenty. So I think I got lucky in that I was around like a medical like my grandma used to be like a cardiology nurse. So yeah, so I was lucky in that she kind of she assumed what it was and then we eventually kind of got it figured out.
0: I have a really personal question.
1: <laughs> uh oh.
0: <laughs> well, so for me, it's so like after dealing with that what I've dealt with, I, I have developed a certain degree of you know PTSD from certain medical experiences. Um when you've had your close calls. Do you deal with that? Um, Is that looming in the back of your head or when you have certain symptoms or are you all right because you're adequately prepared to deal with it, You're typically okay.
1: I think I I definitely know kind of what you're getting at, but I've never experienced them because so when at least in my experiences, I've had a few ambulances called on me, Um, I think mostly because people didn't know that I had type one. So they didn't really understand what was going on. Okay. Um, so they couldn't really help me in the moment. But basically, it was after those experiences, the The biggest like emotion that I felt was just really kind of embarrassment, like, oh, man, I let this happen to myself. So I never really thought of them as kind of close calls. I, I, I- call them. I referred to it like that a little bit ago because Mm -hmm. they, that's pretty much what they were, but I never really, I don't think I ever really, um, associated them with kind of what they actually were, which was like very close calls. Like had nobody, had I not been like in the library or at a basketball game and that had Mm -hmm. happened to me, like maybe in my room by myself, uh, I was an RA for all throughout college. So I didn't have a roommate. So Mm -hmm. I was like very lucky to be like around people during these times that this stuff had happened. Um, but still like there are people that have severe lows and then they get terrified of having them again so they'll intentionally run their their numbers higher in order to avoid that stuff mm-hmm. which has its own sets of complications it's mm-hmm. a little bit they're more in the long term as opposed to like the short term but i'm also i've also got really into like cycling long distance cycling which i think yeah <laughs> which i think got me kind of used to being low so i'm okay with being low fear it i don't get scared but i definitely i get where you're why you're asking that, or where it's coming from? But I do know people that are terrified of being low. Like they will not risk it. They will try to stay above a hundred, which you know is fine. Like it's a oh, definitely an okay place to be. But they'll intentionally, like maybe even run even higher than that. Like in the two hundreds, be okay, just because they're, they're so they're so terrified of going low and getting into those uh, scary situations. I know parents sometimes will let their kids run a little higher, just because they don't want to have to. Um, worry about those those sudden lows or risking anything
0: uh i think i think you hit on it with with embarrassment because i think that's that's what drives most of my my fears when i experience them is i need to make sure that i'm in a place that no one will be will need to help me or will need to help me as little as possible i need to prepare myself (laughs) yeah yeah. in the perfect way Um,
1: exactly yeah embarrassment was a very big motivating factor for me i think yeah
0: be frustrating, especially well, as a kid and in, as in college, like I've only had to deal with these things as an adult, so I mean at least I have that <laughs> in my favor like in favor rather um but in your formative years, I just it's good that you don't define yourself by it, especially when you were diagnosed you know, yeah, in a very formative <laughs> period of your life
1: yeah. I probably went the the wrong way with it try to like not define myself by by almost ignoring it not ignoring it completely because i definitely took care of myself and didn't really run into any complications until later in college so it took a few years by that time I was around nine to ten years in but definitely don't define yourself by it obviously but also kind of trying to avoid it is also i don't think very healthy which is what i did i avoid it completely um, not letting people know, and then putting them in really awkward situations where I clearly needed help, but they just didn't know how to do it or why they should. But yeah, so but yeah, embarrassment is a very big emotion that I felt, especially like waking up surrounded by EMTs and wow. you know who happened to be around at the time.
0: Everybody has their mm-hmm. own way of navigating like their illness and what it means to them, and, and defining themselves by it, around it. You know, everybody has their own personal journey part of you so (laughs) yes you have to at least acknowledge that much but it's not who you are or you as a person which is part of part of the big package I guess
1: (laughs) yeah that was my big fear was that people would define me as the the kid with type one as opposed to whatever I thought I was at the time Mm -hmm. but I think I focused so much on not being defined by my type one that it was the only thing that I saw of myself or I thought that people would see. So I try to hide it even more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's definitely definitely a journey that everybody has to walk. But I think being open with it is probably the better one. At least the one that I would suggest more. You can mm-hmm. definitely try but having been come out the other side, mm-hmm. I think being somewhat open about it and okay with it is a lot easier. Yeah. Now
0: that you are more open about it, is it is it freeing? Does it <sighs> Does it it depend on the day? Do you still like have those moments where you kind of don't want to associate with it?
1: There, yeah, there's definitely certain days are better than others, obviously. But I I do, there was one time, so I did a a big bike ride with a team of type ones, Mm -hmm. which was, I had done bike rides before, but I I was always the only person with type one. So I found with the group of type ones that it was a lot like that load kind of was taken off like i didn't have to worry about it as much because everybody was kind of there and they knew so i kind of understand what it could be like if everybody kind of just knew understood type one what kind of world that would feel like Mm -hmm. but then there are those situations where i'm the only person in the room that has it and uh, sometimes i'll kind of fix it and it can be uh stressful i think and just frustrating because you want to be as normal as you can but like there's just going to be this one thing that will always keep you slightly away from that mm-hmm. mark. But again, normal is kind of like a relative term. And you just have to kind of remember that everybody has something that they're dealing with. Yeah. Is a little bit more labor intensive than other ones, others
0: normal is a very relative term and healing is absolutely not linear healing goes in many different circles so it's always yeah just like the importance of having that community isn't it like ridiculously healing and just (laughs) just something for your soul just being around people that that understand that that have the same part of the same struggles those kind of communities are great to
1: have. Yeah, do those that kind of community? Because at least for type one, type one is pretty rare in and of itself. But the mm-hmm. type one community online is very big and pretty active. If you you know find it, it's very like type one accounts on Instagram are very very common. Mm-hmm. People people nowadays get diagnosed and then two or three weeks later they have an Instagram account about their type one. Do you find anything like that with your particular condition, or mm-hmm. is there a community like that?
0: There are online communities, so obviously it's, it's extremely <laughs> rare of a condition, um, that, but the communities that are out there are very close and very dedicated and extremely helpful because they've all been this, through the same struggle of, you know, dealing with this for years, it's in your head, going through hell and back to finally get <laughs> through the other side. So it, there's, there's a certain level of just, we've all been through so much trauma they're very, very there for you. <laughs> so yeah, again, just online communities and having someone that shares that experience is amazing and hugely beneficial, I think, for everyone involved and even even people's families that I think I think that's something that maybe people that aren't in the chronic illness community or don't deal with any sort of illnesses. Um, even just joining those communities and you know reading or if anybody wants to understand. <laughs> that's usually a good place to start.
1: I know type one par- parents with children with type one have a lot of, a lot to go through, especially because they're dealing with this a lot of times for their children because their kids are either too young
2: mm-hmm. to
1: deal, deal with it themselves. So yeah, there's a lot of resources for type one parents out there. There's a lot of Facebook groups that I've seen, uh, a lot of type one parents that I've met that go to all the conventions and things like that, just to kind of get, and then more, a lot of it is for them, but I think a lot of it is also for their kids, like to show their kids that they're not the only ones that have this, that they can definitely lead long, normal lives with it and just kind of like establish that sense of normalcy within a very abnormal kind of condition.
0: Oh, and then the way that it, the way that illness affects people around you is a whole other, (laughs) whole other beast. It's always, it's always an interesting journey. From diagnosis to getting to where you want and need to be both physically and mentally.
1: Yes. And it's always changing too, I think.
0: Do you think, I'm just thinking in terms of of other people, do you need distance sometimes when you're processing things?
1: I guess, yeah. Yeah. It's not necessarily like a type one thing. I think it's just like a person thing. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I guess in situations where at least for high blood sugars, I know that I get really irritable. So that could be a time where space is better. I think those times high blood sugars would be a time to steer clear.
0: Something that I've experienced with, with other people is just sometimes they take it so personally because obviously it is very frustrating when yeah. you're relapsing and going back into one of those situations, you know, take a step back. Don't take it personal. I just need a minute. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, We seem to have similar experiences in that regard.
1: (laughs) What experience do you have in that regard? Like where there's times Um, where people would lay off as opposed to maybe help more.
0: Anytime that I'm dealing with an overwhelming situation of, of pain or, um, again, I frequently deal with hypokalemia where my potassium drops and I get really dizzy. My heart's acting nuts, um, just really disoriented. Um, and again, some people, their concern and love for you <laughs> right. makes them just be overwhelming like in your face. What do you need? Like, how can I help? What do I do? Like, just, yeah. just give me a minute. Like,
2: yeah, your help like sometimes
0: out. I might lash out just because like, I'm just really overwhelmed problem solve and figure out what I need to do, how serious is it, what do I need, like, do I need to take this medicine, do I need to do that, do I need to see a doctor, like, do I just need to breathe it out, like, <laughs> so in the process, like, I don't just, it's overwhelming, like, just give me a minute, I'm sorry if I say something mean, <laughs> um, but people can take it so personally because, I mean, they're, all they're trying to do is help, again, it's just, it's, it's a, it's, it's a crazy balance that you, that it's just different day-to-day, it's, it's endearing. But some, sometimes just give me a minute to figure this out. Like, stay around in case I need somebody. Like, yeah. like you don't, like, I'll let you know if I need help.
1: <laughs> and then at least in type one, there are those situations where you can't really talk, like low blood sugar specifically. Your cognitive ability is, like, shot. Like, so you're, it's hard to focus. And then you have this person asking you what you think they need to do. So having to explain it to somebody while you're in a state where you can't really explain things, uh, yeah. sometimes you physically can't even talk, like open up your mouth. And then so having to deal with them freaking out is more stress on an already stressful situation. People mm-hmm. wanting to help are kind of wanting that reassurance that they're doing the right thing too. And then when you're in a state where you can't really talk, you're not really there to kind of pat them on the back kind of thing. Right. Or at least yeah. not in the immediate sense when they kind of expect it. So it can be difficult coaching them through helping you.
0: Again, it's, it means a lot. It means a lot when people are there and they're willing to help.
1: <laughs> and that's the episode. What do you all think? Any of you type 1s living with additional chronic illnesses? Are you a spooning yourself? Any type nuns listening in? Do you have a chronic illness? Do type 1 struggles remind you of your own? Again, if you haven't already, I really suggest you look into spoon theory. If nothing else, it's a really great reminder that you're not alone in this, even though it might feel like that sometimes. Please feel free to send me any of your questions, answers, or suggestions. Visit askabouttype1.com and go to the contact page. Tune in next week when I have my Type 1 camp friend Erica on, which is interesting because I only started going to Type 1 camp a year ago. Listen in as we take a deep dive into past episodes and talk about Type 1 camp for adults. All right, everybody, I'm going to head out. In the spirit of switching things up, I think I'm going to try and change my lancet today. Bye.